Hi, my name is Rich Nadwarney, and welcome to Innovation Explorers, Hello Future's English podcast that dives into the challenges and rewards of innovation. Each episode, we talk with people on the front lines of innovation and change work as they share their unique perspectives on some of the most common issues we face. This podcast is primarily for those of you working in large and mid-sized organizations who want to get your change and innovation initiatives moving faster, better, and with more internal alignment. This week, I'm speaking with Eric Wood, CEO of Explain, a change and activation company focusing on design and innovation. Eric recently released a book, The Strategy Activation Playbook, and in today's episode, he's going to share with us some of the highlights and background from the book. Eric, I was wondering if you could uh, tell me a little bit about yourself and introduce yourself to all of our Swedish fans. Absolutely. Well, Rich, I'm so glad to be here with you and uh, with all the folks uh, that are listening. Um, I am a CEO of Explain. We're a design consultancy based out of Portland, Oregon, but we do have offices in Europe as well. And um, I like to think of myself as a recovering management consultant. I started my, my career uh, at Bain & Company doing strategy work. And one of the things that we found uh, in doing that work is that there's a lot of really smart people doing really incredible strategy design. But then when it comes time to actually see that strategy come to life, oftentimes it sort of dies on the vine. And uh, there's not nearly as much energy put into executing strategy and bringing strategy to life and particularly motivating people to get aligned with strategy. So a lot of what Explain does is work with our clients uh, to help them bring their strategies to life. Uh, we do it through a combination of design modalities. We're very invested in visual thinking. We believe that you can communicate a lot of information with, uh, with pictures more than just words. So we use visuals and information graphics in all of our, in all of our programs. Uh, we also very much believe in co-creation. We think that um, ultimately people are going to be much more supportive of that which they build themselves. So we try to facilitate a process of design as designers of working with our clients to help them create their own solutions and then bring them to life. Um, and then lastly, we really just anchor on human-centered design principles um, that, you know, an organization is not a monolith. An organization is made up of many, many different human beings who have agency. And so we need to really have empathy and understand the wants and needs of those individuals uh, as we design our solutions. So that's a little bit about Explain. We, um, uh, we've worked with um, probably 150 of the Fortune 500, lots of global companies, um, kind of all around the world. And we've been in business about 30 years. Thanks. I, I have to admit, I'm a huge Explain fan since I think it was, what, 2004 or five, when I stumbled across the book, uh, The VP of No. Oh, wow. <laughs> Remember that one? Uh, it was that's one a, of Dave Gray's. Yeah, and it was like this visual story of sales. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were having trouble with our, you know, with our own sales. And I, I found this book, which was all visual. And I was like, oh, my God, these guys must be the smartest guys around because they're doing everything in pictures, which is really hard, but it was really easy to uh, to uh, understand. And so I've been kind of following you somewhat religiously since then. And it's really interesting to see this book, Eric. I, I know that... Um, I've seen a lot of this in in the material and content that you guys have been publishing, but you've put this all together now, this strategy activation playbook. So can you tell tell me a little bit of like, so why did you actually write this book and why now? 
Well, you know, so thank you. It's um, uh, that that observation I mentioned before that you know people people tend to, especially leaders and organizations, tend to jump right from strategy making to strategy doing. Right. So the phrases we're familiar with are strategic planning, which is then followed by strategy execution, and yet eighty percent of all strategies fail. Um, and this has been studied by everybody from Robert Kaplan to multiple academics, but. Any, you know, any study you look at, 70 to 90 percent, some range around there of strategies that get launched fail. And so we started looking at why is that and what's going on with that and how can we be maybe part of a solution there? And we found that there were really a couple key reasons that it happens. And, it you know, it happens because we aren't really investing in activation. We're not investing in taking the time beyond a PowerPoint presentation at the all hands meeting to to help people really unpack what is the strategy and why we're doing this. Um, we're not investing in helping people build connections to their own, you know, individual. What's my role in this, and where do I fit? Um, and over time, what we're what we wanted to solve, and the reason that this is the right time is we recognize the world of change has changed. The reason leaders used to think I can take this strategy and cascade it down the organization, and everyone's going to snap to it, is that the organizational model used to be a hierarchical business model, tops down, you know, command and control. And what's changed in the last 40 or 50 years is that organizations have started to compete on innovation and creativity. And so we're hiring these really smart, innovative people who have agency mm-hmm. and we're paying them to think for themselves. But we still assume that they're just going to live in this hop, this, this hierarchical topstone model. And they don't. They really have to be persuaded to do a new thing differently next week. And so now is the right time to really be thinking about strategy activation because we have to recognize that the entire theory of change, all of the change models that we've learned, all the management models we've learned in business school are outdated. And so that's that's kind of how we've gotten here. Wow, that's fascinating. And just to, you, you're, you actually went to Harvard Business School, right? You're, you're mm-hmm. It's kind of a, cool that you're doing human-centered design and you have this MBA from Harvard, which to me feels like an oxymoron, but it also means you have an understanding of what's going on. So it sounds, Eric, like uh, interesting. You're talking about the hierarchical model, and you, we kind of think that that hierarchical model is changing also from the top down. But what you're saying is it's changing really from the bottom and middle up because the people who are who are hiring, you know, w- refuse to fit in that, and so the the organization has to respond to this new type of 20th century worker. Absolutely. I think, you know, it's the modern organization is something that's really interesting to explore. You know, if we really think about when I was in business school, um, you know, so John Cotter was was one of the instructors uh, in the change program, you know, probably the preeminent uh, thought leader on that topic um, when I was in business school. Um, whether you look at, um, you know, at, at Cotter's work or whether you look at, um, you know, sort of ProSci or any of the other sort of change certification models that are currently out there, as well as a lot of the, the theory behind it. Most of it was written in the 50s or in the 40s. Um, a lot of that content was developed around a business model that that came up in the post-World War era. At that time, you know, something over 60% of business leaders in the Fortune 500 were ex-military. Um, we had a model that was built really for, you know, the history of business since the Industrial Age started on these tops-down structures. But then the 70s come along and we start competing around technology and in the 80s and 90s, more creativity and innovation. And we had to start hiring different types of people. We wanted to hire people that didn't just do what they said we're told to do. We wanted to hire people that were going to think and push the boundaries and do new things. 
So our organizations became much more empowered and individuals in those organizations were much more empowered and more diverse, but we really haven't upgraded or updated our theory of how organizations work. But I think if you look at it, the way we talk about it in the book is that we've gone from being a a mechanistic business model, tops down hierarchical structures, to much more of an organism. We've got lots of small little groups of people working in pods, interconnected through lots of hubs and spokes. And those organizations have agency within the overall structure. Um, So you can't really take a monolithic approach to change anymore. And you certainly can't take a monolithic approach to rolling out strategy. You have to really recognize that it's not one organization that's going to go through five or seven steps. It's rather thousands of individuals, lots of different stakeholder groups with different wants and needs, each of whom is going to look at your change a little differently. So we wanted to bring that human-centered design process into this and really understand, hey, if I'm rolling out a new change in this organization, which groups are going to love it? Which groups are not going to love it and why? Which groups are going to be confused and maybe sit on the sidelines? And what do I need to address for each of them to get them on board and moving forward together? I think that's one of the most fun things about this book uh, that I uh, I read out of it was you're using the same human-centered design practices that we try to teach organizations to use to their stakeholders, but you're using it internally instead. And to me, that's like almost a bigger leap than than using it toward your customers. And and I'm kind of wondering, you know, what kind of, uh, how do people uh, react to this? Because it's not something they're used to doing. I mean, even though we've been reading, I remember Gallup or Deloitte put out the, you know, how HR will now be the driver of human-centered design. I think that was 2015, right? Didn't didn't really mm-hmm. happen that way. I'm wondering, like, what, what kind of reaction do you get when you're coming in and saying, hey, we're going to use these tools on your employees because you know what they're all really different individuals acting logically and illogically what happens the biggest competition we have is organizations not wanting to spend the money to do this right um so to your point we're starting to we're starting to see clients hire us to map their organization to help them make it a more customer centric organization so we're going in and we're doing journey mapping to study um you know how this particular organization's touch points with their customers are from a health perspective and how can we improve that but they haven't yet made the leap to oh i'm going to spend the same kind of money to to map my employee journey i'm not going to spend the same kind of money to understand what's different about my organization and so you know we we talk in the book about one of the biggest failures around activating strategies just investing in the activation so if you go out and spend a million dollars to hire a top tier consultancy or probably more than that if you're hiring one of the top three consultancies for your strategy should you not allocate 10, 20, 25% of the same funds to make sure that that investment is going to be successful? You know, why not buy that insurance policy? And that insurance policy is going in and actually doing the work to understand how will my organization react to this? What are the stakeholder groups that are going to be in support of that, that I can harness their energy to start to show some best practices and some traction? Who are the groups that are going to be opposed to this or threatened by this that maybe all I need to do is understand why they're threatened about it and then support them with the new tools or the job aids or the training to get them over the hump. These are the kinds of things that um, should seem so obvious to us, right? I'll give you an example. You know, digital transformation projects abound. They're everywhere around us, right? Yep. But you introduce that digital transformation project into an organization that's talking to consumers and maybe the developers are stoked about this. They're so excited because they're going to be building these new bots and these new automated ways of, of, of interacting with customers. 
And meanwhile, the entire customer support organization is threatened because they're like, our jobs are going to be automated and we're going to be kicked out of this organization, right? So those two groups have totally different attitudes about that change. And if we understand that, and if we get under the hood and understand what they're concerned about, maybe those concerns aren't real. Maybe that, that customer support team is going to get leveled up to a whole new level of participation with their customers, where they can really work on the, on the meaty problems that, that, that give them motivation to work on. Um, and they shouldn't be threatened at all. But if we don't take the time to educate them or share with them or maybe give them new skills or training, we might lose really, really good people in the organization. So that's just one example of, of what we mean by that. Um, so, you know, part of it is demonstrating that it works. Um, I think like any good business, they want a business case. And so one thing we're trying to do in the book is start to share some of the business case for why this works. If you can become part of the 20% that successfully execute strategy for a small investment, why wouldn't you do it? I think that's one of the things that stands out in this book, which I, I'll call, you know, a design book for lack of a better word, is that, you know, design books usually don't have business cases in them, mm -hmm. right? And you guys you guys take that up right away. And you've talked about money a couple of times already. And I, I think the thing that kind of jumps out at me, even though I've seen this over and over again, is this idea of, of failure, right? If you're saying 80% of strategy projects fail, and, we, and we've seen this, you know, even in the digital transformation projects of these spectacular failures, that's a lot of money going down the drain. And somehow we, we were expecting people to react to that. And I, I think one of the things is they haven't really reacted strongly enough for, for us, maybe, to say, how could we stop doing this? And, and I think that's one of the things that struck me in this book is like, oh, you've got a little like money business case in this. You've got like a little sales tool of how all of us can, uh, can use the strategy activation. So that was that was interesting that you guys chose to do that because it feels like an important part of your whole value proposition. Well, it just to me, you know, so you, you raised the the idea that I, I've gone to business school and I've worked in the world of design for a quarter of a century. And I try to always think about where are the intersections of those things? And I and I continue to wonder why it is we don't see this. Like if we were to gamify this as business people and we were to say, OK, I'm going to put you in a game and you've got a big investment, you're going to invest a million dollars to get to an outcome, you've got an 80% chance of failure and you've got a 20% chance of success. Now, what if I gave you an additional $100,000 you could invest, and if you invested it here, here, and here, you could actually flip those odds. Would you make that, that investment? Is there an ROI on that? And of course, people would say, well, obviously the smart thing to do is X, Y, and Z, right? And so that game is right before our eyes. Like we can see it and there's data out there to show it, but for some reason we don't do that that thinking. We still are working under the myth that organizations will do what they're told uh, in a monolithic way. And so we're only starting to see real research on this. I, and I, what I'd like to see is I'd like to challenge more um, organizations to go out uh, and do the same thing. And let's not just find out what the business cases are. But let's go find you know what, what organizations are doing well. What are the best practices that are showing up? And are there some themes and consistencies around that? Um, I'll highlight, I'll, I'll do a shout out to McKinsey. They just published, I don't know, maybe a year ago, an article where, uh, and I, I can't quote the study exactly, but they effectively went out to, to measure how many people in your organization have to be engaged for change mm. to take hold. Mm. And on average, most of the organizations were engaging fewer than 2% of their organization. And what they found was the tipping point was seven, right? So we got to do you know more than triple the investment we're making right now to get to that tipping point where we go from 20 to 
Um, I'd like to see more research like that because that's the stuff that's really mm. going to help people understand that there's there's really something to this. Because seven percent doesn't sound like a lot, you know. I guess if you're if you have a million people, yeah, it's you know seventy thousand people. But you know, if you're talking about uh, an organization that's a thousand people, that's seventy people. That's like that's just not a lot of people. And so that that's really interesting. Uh, you know, the other thing that you brought up, Eric, was that uh you know this idea of there are people who are going to be resistant to change and we use the methods to kind of include them and reduce some of their fears it's kind of that's this is one of my uh, you know focus areas right now i'm a little bit in love with this whole idea of fear and resistance and and uh and courage because you know we talk about change most people are going to react and say oh boy that's i, I there so i'm going to lose somehow or you know this is a risk for me and and i think as exactly as you said a lot of that is just in our heads right we've never yeah. actually shared that with anyone you you have actually one of the one of the templates in your book which i love i, I love i love these you know your book's full of templates we'll get to that in a, in a, in a sec and i kind of love this you have this template called the force field analysis, right? Forces for and forces against. So you're kind of doing a little pre-mortem in this process to try to figure out who's going to be resistant to the change we're suggesting of these 7% that we need to activate. And like, what? Do, how can we help them through this? And I think that's, you know, again, one of the things we don't see a lot of, because as you've said, we, we imagine it's going to be a top down, everyone's going to follow through with this. And that just that just doesn't happen. No, it doesn't. You know, and, and we talk about it. Um, one of the things we try to, uh, I think, plant the seed around is like, we don't need to bring everybody along. You know, like it is a myth to say we have to find everybody that's resistant and convert them. Like that's that's also not true. What we really want to do is create a movement. We want to start to create a momentum, you know, those those 70 people of a thousand that are going to get out in front and start demonstrating this is a better way of doing things will then help convince, convince the next 700 to come along. And so we talk about it in terms of just kind of thinking about a normal curve, right? Where in any organization, if you introduce a, a change, there might be 20% of the people in the organization that are like, yay, let's go do this. You know, we're on, we're ready, we're on board, let's make this thing happen. And there might be another 20% on the other side that are totally resistant, right? And they are, this is the flavor of the month, I've seen this before, I'm not doing this, or I'm threatened, or whatever it is. Those aren't really the people we care most about. Those people are already polarized. We've still got 60% of the organization sitting in the middle, mm -hmm. sitting on the fence, quite literally sitting on that fence saying, I'm just going to see where this goes. You know, I could go either way. And so what it is, it's about creating a movement where we get to those 60%. Who are the people in the middle that haven't really made up their mind yet? That if we can get them to tip over into that side that's actually enthusiastic and moving forward together, we've now got 80% of the mass of that organization engaged in a movement in the direction we want to go. And so that's a lot of what we want to be thinking about is also just stakeholder mapping, understanding who are the various groups in the organization, who are supportive, who are resistant, who are, you know, perhaps there are some groups that are absolutely not going to get on board. And maybe that's where we don't invest our time. We shouldn't be investing our time in those folks that really, if they join the movement, we're going to have the mass of the organization going in the same direction, aligned and moving forward together towards a common vision. You know, one of the things that stands out to me too. I, I remember seeing this in in your slides in a in a conference we were at. Just you know, you have your base layer of this of the you know the innovation or the change vision, 
and you're talking a lot about how you visualize that, right? And, and so that so one that's one part of it. And the other is the kind of that next phase is okay, so you contextualize it. What does this mean to me, right? You individualize it. This is nice. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How is this going to affect me? And I'm wondering if you could talk about those two things together. First, you know, this idea of visualizing a vision mm -hmm. and, and what impact that is, and then how, how people can see themselves in this vision. You know, as humans, we're storytellers, right? And so, Rich, we've been, you know, we've been telling each other stories for millennia, and we've only really been using written communication for 2,500, 3,000 years. Um, and so... Uh, as just as human beings, we are, um, we're drawn to stories. We're trying to place and do sense making to understand where we fit in the world by drawing paintings of the hunting grounds inside the cave, all the way to, you know, the book you mentioned that, that, that Dave Gray wrote a couple of years ago that first introduced to explain those resonate for us. And so one of the biggest mistakes we've seen as we go in and do this work is we'll start to talk to somebody about their strategy and then we'll ask them, well, what's this a strategy to? Where is this taking us? What's our vision? You know, strategies, if you really break them down, strategies are a plan to get to a place, right? They're, I want to get from point A to point B, and this is the strategy we're choosing to get from point A to point B. And yet, I can't tell you how often we work, start working with clients where they say, well, we need you to help us activate our strategy, and they haven't described what point B looks like yet. Mm -hmm. And so, as human beings, to tie your points together, as human beings, we want to see line of sight to where I'm at today and where we're going to go together tomorrow. If you ask me to join an expedition and we don't have a destination, I'm probably not going to be as excited about that. And so we really, um, I do believe in my heart that strategy and strategy activation starts with a clear vision picture. And when I say vision picture, I mean, quite literally, can you draw it out? Can you actually paint a picture of how the world is going to look different in five years, either look different for you or for your customer or how our, our our combined purposeful business is going to impact the world in a new way. And if you literally close your eyes and then open them and imagine what it looks like five years from now, if you've been successful, tell that story, you know, draw that picture out. That's what we need to start the strategy activation journey. Because with that in mind, now we can start to say, and if you all agree, we want to go here, let's talk about our strategy to get there. And let's talk about your role in it. And we can maybe improve it together, but we all have to be aligned around where we're headed. So this idea of painting up this picture of the future, do you find that leadership and management groups can get behind that? It's not maybe something that they're used to doing, right? They're not. And oftentimes there's a lot of skepticism about it. And, um, you know, like my go-to move is like, okay, let's just put two hours into the, into the activation agenda workshop just to talk about vision, just, just to make sure we're aligned. Because there's not a lot of, of, of um, there's not a lot of leaders that are willing to say, yeah, let's get in the room with a, a consultant and a designer and an artist and try to like draw a picture of this. It doesn't happen as often as I wish it did. However, what does happen is if we, if we sort of embed that, that into a workshop that we're already working with them, and we actually, for example, set 10 leaders down and say, okay, here's a big piece of paper, draw your vision of where we're going to go five years from now. And then we have them individually do that exercise and then share out. What we're going to see is that they all tell a different story. Yeah, all ten of them will tell a version of that strategy story, much like the the, the parable about the five blind men and the elephant. One's describing the trunk, and one's describing the tail, and one's describing the leg, and that makes sense, right? Because if you're the 
if you're the uh, you know if if you're the leader of the, the business development function, you're going to tell a a sales and growth story. And if you're the leader of the product marketing group, you're going to tell uh, how do we build this kind of story? How do we envision the story? But what you realize is that you're already dead in the water because you got your ten most senior leaders going out and telling ten different stories to the organization. No wonder nobody sees the same destination. And so when they see that, and we start talking about, okay, now how do we bring this together? What's the story we need to tell the organization? And we start working with them to start to create one common picture. That's when the aha moment happens and the light goes off mm. and they say, okay, I get it. That's awesome, right? You can't explain it to them. They have to experience it, which is really the whole design philosophy. And then and then you talk about how, we, how you work with companies to allow individuals to see their place in this new story, which I think is like incredibly smart and and human because the stories have to resonate with us and we have to be a part of these stories. I, I don't know if you've seen, I've been kind of reading a little bit about LARPing, you know, uh -huh. this live action role play and where, you know, people can dress up as a Harry Potter uh, uh, character or a Star Wars character. And instead of just going to Universal Studios, they're actually playing a part in this fantasy world which is mm -hmm. you know they're playing a part in the future we're you know i don't yet i'd love to do this but we're not doing that so much as but we're still doing part of that right how can you what role are you going to play as mm -hmm. you move forward yeah no I that resonates for me because it's um it's a big part of the reason we love games so we use games a lot uh in gamification in our activation work um and it's it's because of that larping thing you've described right it's a very different thing to see a powerpoint of Here's the history of the world in 1066 and blah, 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 versus we're going to put on a costume. You're going to play a role. You're going to imagine yourself in it because now you're world building. Now you're fleshing out this detail. You're you're internalizing it. You're activating it inside of you and you learn quickly. And so um, the way that translates into strategy activation, for example, um, uh, this is a public case study. Uh, we worked with with UPS to help them activate their enterprise strategy a number of years ago. And one of the things that, you know, that was done instead of saying, let's let's get all the leaders together and do a PowerPoint presentation of the strategy. Instead, we we did that very quickly. Here are the major strategic points. Now you're going to play with it. Now you're going to play a game where you have to actually use the strategy to win. And we built a board game and we got people sitting in groups of five and six and seven people. And they actually had to play roles in the game where they're using those tactics of the strategy to actually win and they had to collaborate to win it was a collaborative board game and the fact that in two hours they could rehearse the experience they could rehearse the strategy and they could see how if they worked together on the strategy in this new way they could get better outcomes than if they applied the tactics they were using today so it was a no risk way to rehearse a new way and internalize information and and i dare say it was fun like people had a great time doing it and there's really no reason we can't have fun at work it's more engaging people tend to retain information more quickly we haven't gone as far as getting them all dressed up in in, in renaissance <laughs> costumes yet but you know if that opportunity comes Maybe. along it's a great learning tool right the right business okay cool well we'll post a link to the ups case study i i love that too i love games i love the role playing right? This idea of internalizing. In the book, in the strategy activation playbook, you have a lot of templates that Explain has created over the years, and you've kind mm -hmm. of packaged them together in this sequence, which I think is really smart. And, you know, one, so 
I have to admit, like one of my first, my my knee jerk reaction when I'm being a jerk is, yeah, there's a lot of templates and people aren't really going to use these, right? They're just going to fill them out and not do them. But, you know, and then as I'm digging into this, it's like, oh, these are all of my favorite templates. I use these all the time. And so, you know, it was like, ooh, here's a good one. And, and here's a new one I'm going to try. And so I'm, I'd like you to kind of tell our listeners this idea of the way that you've structured the book around activation and trying to make it easy for other people to do the same things you do. Can you talk a little bit about your templates and uh, maybe even like what's your what's your favorite template? Yeah, well, tell you what, I'll tell you my favorite template, and then I'll explain. I'll answer using that one. My favorite template is one that probably a lot of your listeners know, which is the empathy map. So the empathy map um, originated uh, now almost two decades ago um, as a mechanism uh, to try to understand stakeholders to say, okay, now if we're going to walk in these folks' shoes. What are they thinking? What are they seeing? What are they not seeing? What's in their head? What are, you know? What's going on back there? And it was a tool to start to help working with our customers, have them understand that these stakeholder groups do have different attitudes towards a change state, um, and we need to really understand them. So to your point around the templates, um, the templates are really frameworks, and the idea of them putting them into a template is that um, you can you can kind of turn the volume up or down on them as much as your research budget allows to put it into agency terms. We are not often funded to do as much discovery as we know we should do, right? We don't get the chance to go in and really get in the organization and do a lot of interviews and do a lot of stakeholder mapping and do a lot of journey mapping to really understand the depth we'd love to, what's going on in the organization and what are the unique wants and needs of each stakeholder. So sometimes we have to take shortcuts. And so an empathy map is an example of a potential shortcut. It could be criticized by saying, well, that's not very accurate. However, the very act of asking you to try to outline what your boss is thinking, right, is an act of trying to get you in an empathy state, to get you to start to walk in her shoes and say, well, how might she be feeling about this? And what do I hear her saying about this? But what do I think she's really thinking in the back of her head? And maybe what are the pressures she's feeling outside of this that I don't see? And that empathy mapping exercise gets you to start to role model, starts to, to play those motions and start to get inside their head. But you can turn the volume up on that, right? So you don't have to stop at having my perception of what Rich's thought of and of her opinion is. You can document Rich's perspective and then you can go talk to five other people and get that same thing. Or you can go talk to that stakeholder themselves. <laughs> and so you can start to use the stakeholder mapping exercise and empathy mapping exercise as an interview guide, right? To say, okay, I now know I need to understand the attitude of the product marketing group, the sales team, the customer service team. And you can build a persona using that template, using rigorous research methods that gives you a higher level of fidelity using that very same template. So bottom line, the idea of the templates is it's a guide to how to do the work. And then how much fidelity you put into it is really just a function of how much you invest. You can invest a lot of time, a lot of research, or you can do a quick back of the napkin assessment. Um, either way, you're doing more than you would have done otherwise. Yeah, I, I have to admit, over the years, the empathy map is, you know, the is my most used human-centered design tool ever. Mm -hmm. And and what I find with that, as you described, is so I use it in my intro workshops with the internal team. What do you think? What are your assumptions about this, this customer or this target group? 
And then we go out and we do all our qualitative uh, information gathering. And then we map out a new empathy map. And, yep. and again, it's that aha moment. It's like, oh, some of the stuff is actually right, right? They they kind of guessed right. And, but you have this critical part, which is not right, which is new. And it's at one of the better ways to kind of show the difference between our internal thinking and actually sitting down with the people who are, who are impacted by that. So good, good choice. I had one that, that I saw here, which I, I loved, and it was it was called the Building Blocks Cheat Sheet. Ah, uh, yeah. <laughs> and you have these kind of building blocks of the strategy mm -hmm. activation. What do you need to do at what time? So you can visually map things out, which I you know I just love doing that anyway for for any type of planning. But what I love about this, because I'm I'm kind of a, a, a nerd about these pictures, is rather than trying to make me remember all the things that I can do, you've kind of pre-populated, you know, how do you share the story different ways of doing that? Or how do you interact and explore with others? Or how do you personalize the story or tools for daily work? And so when I see that, Eric, it shows me that you're trying to make this as easy as possible, right? We don't have to reinvent the wheel on a lot of this. We kind of know these pieces, but we're not really that good at putting them together for mm -hmm. these internal change movements. And so that one, that one just jumped on me as like, oh my God, this is so, you've simplified this complex thing. It's still going to be hard to do, but now at least I don't have to worry about that part of it. And I love that. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, I'm glad you found it useful because what we, you know, what we thought about here is you know, we've got a couple of decades of experience of doing this. And, you know, though every single activation program is different by design, there are a lot of common building blocks we use. Um, and uh, I know you're in Scandinavia. You know, Lego is one of my family's very favorite uh, things to interact with. And I say interact with because it's not necessarily a toy. We use it as a learning tool. We use it as a design tool. We do mock-ups with them. But the idea of Lego bricks is that they're all pieces and parts which can be combined in lots of different ways to create lots of different things. And so the building block worksheet was an attempt to say, what are the plays we run a lot at Explain? What are the best practices? What are the things that almost we we use most often in most organizations? And let's just list those best practices out because there's no reason for you to reinvent the wheel. And importantly, a good activation plan actually has a combination of things in different order. We talk about it, the activation curve. What's the journey that people take in learning? You know, first thing, they're probably going to have some building blocks around communications. What are the right communication tools in this organization to get the information out? Then in the second phase, we call it the believe it phase. There's a phase of learning. So if I if I now understand this vision you're trying to sell me and I understand the strategy and I believe it might work, I now need to start applying things in my daily work, but I might need some new learning tools. I might need some job aids. So in that phase, we're introducing those things. And then the final phase, the live it phase, we want to embed it. And there's some best practices for how organizations embed it. And this is a phase a lot of people forget to do. Like, how do we celebrate our victories? And how do we, mm -hmm. you know, update our policies? And how do we really get this entrenched in the organization? So we want to suggest some of those things as well so that people recognize not only, A, I don't have to invent all this whole cloth. I can go borrow some of these things from this book. But secondly, I should have a couple of each because if I'm really going to finish this journey with people, I can't just stop in the communications phase. I need to go into those next phases also. This idea of institutionalizing the rituals, I think, is so critical. And it's like we we see so many organizations, they just skip over that and 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 they pay for it. Uh, yeah. So you know, the, so many organizations make a huge launch of the thing, right? And then you hear nothing about it again. 
<laughs> which is why which is why the 20% are always tired of this, you know, flavor of the month thing. You yeah. Know, so it's a great book. Uh, why won't some people use it correctly? Ah, million dollar question. <laughs> um, back to that first conversation we had about building the business case. Um, I think a couple things. One is that we need more leaders to read this book. Uh, we need more leaders to really get that I need to make as much of an investment in uh, building a movement uh, as I do uh, building a strategy. And so we need to get this book out of the, the you know, it should, it should be in the hands of change practitioners, but they should be handing the book also to, mm -hmm. to leaders um, because there's got to be some pull from above. We need to start changing mindsets around what the modern organization really is. Uh, and then the second thing that uh, we need to do is just be willing to do that exercise to figure out what the business case is to do this work. You should, if you're working with a really great uh, partner, you should invest in putting some money in their budget to go do the discovery, to really talk to employees and understand and truly map what their stakeholder wants and needs are. It's worth it. The I like to tell leaders when I'm having this conversation, you know, if you can, before you launch this thing, anticipate all the obstacles you're about to hit, wouldn't you want to spend the money to buy that map? So uh, buy the map, go out and spend the money to actually understand how people are going to react to this change you're proposing in your organization uh, and get ahead of those things so that you don't lose momentum when you're actually taking the trail. You talked previously about, you know, all of management, modern management practices built on military experience. So you're selling them the the topographical map of the landmines, right? Before you kind exactly. of go attack, right? I, mean, I haven't really thought of that before, but it's a good, it's a good metaphor. Um, you also, you end the book with the seven best practices for leading strategy activation programs. Make it visual, make it measurable, make it people-centered, co-create solutions, activate people, design in governance, love it, and embrace agility. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I love I love these you know best practices and design principles really. I'm wondering if you could uh, say something about you know why you included those and how how people should use those. I'll very simply thank our clients, um, our enlightened clients that have gone and taken this journey for those because those are actually our documentation of the best practices of what made our successful clients successful. When we saw that they embraced those principles. They were more successful when they, than, than when they followed a, a, rigid, a rigid process. And that's why we choose the word principles there as well is that, um, you know, the to pick up another military saying, no plan survives first contact. Even using this book or using this methodology to build a, a great activation plan, you need to know that the plan that you create isn't the one you're actually going to ultimately execute. You need to build that agility in. You need mm -hmm. to build in that sense of response. You need to understand that um, circumstances are going to change or maybe you got something wrong. But you need to be willing to say, okay, and then what? And then do the next thing that's in the in the right order to continue the journey. And so we, we observed uh, those clients that really were successful in making change and activating strategy. Um, and these are the principles that feel like the the ones that are consistently winners and ones that people should keep top of mind. Great. Thanks. So as we wrap this up, anything else that you want to say that we didn't talk about? Uh, I think we've had a really good wide ranging conversation. Um, I think the 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 single thing I really want to stress for folks is to start to think of the organization as an organism. Think of it as a living being. It's not a machine. We can't program it. Um, we've got a lot of people 
that are cells in these larger structures that are making agreements with each other every day. And as a result, this is, you know, an organization, whether it be a for-profit or a nonprofit, any organization of people is really an organism and it behaves in a lot of similar ways to that. So we really just need to shift people's thinking uh, about the nature of the organization today. And so I think that's a topic I'd love to be in my next book, but there's some really good work that's already been done on this. But I encourage to, you know, people to start thinking about how do we start thinking about the health of an organization? How do we start thinking about the organization as an organism? Um, and how do we start to apply a lot of the things that we already know from uh, from design, from biology, from anthropology to the the organization so that we can have a more human-centered look at how our, our organizations work together? Great. I, I love that. It's, it, to me, I'm hearing, right, how do we humanize our our, our organizational structures make them a little less militaristic and a little more human if we're going to succeed in the 21st century. So, you know, this idea of, so buy the book, Strategy Activation Playbook, and when you're done, send it to your 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 clients and the leaders and get them to read it too is the other takeaway I'm hearing from, from our discussion today. And I want to thank you uh, enormously for for joining us on this podcast. It's great to see you, Eric. And I hung out at a at a conference where we were speakers in Istanbul four mm -hmm. years ago. So it's great to see you. It's great to see the progress you guys are making, and and good luck with everything, Eric. Thanks for joining us, Eric Wood, CEO of Explain. Thanks, Rich. So glad to be here with you. Take care. Thanks for listening to Innovation Explorers. Hello Future's English podcast that dives into the challenges and rewards of innovation. You've just heard a chat with Eric Wood, CEO of Explain, talking about his book, The Strategy Activation Playbook. We'll be posting links to the book and the case study Eric mentioned on our website. If you have suggestions for people or subjects you'd like to hear more about, send us an email at podcast at hellofuture.com. If you want to chat in person, either in real life or virtually, you can book a fika, as we say in Sweden, with me anytime. This is Rich Nadworny from Hello Future. See you next time.